Well, good morning, church. Uh, before we turn to 1 Samuel 25, I did want to just take some time and um, just pray over the recent events, obviously, that we saw in Evalde, Texas, and uh, in Buffalo, and lift up those families before the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, um, as we think of those who have just experienced immense loss this week and in the weeks prior, uh, we come before you on their behalf. Lord, um, throughout the scriptures, uh, we see that there is um, a very faithful process called lament, where we can bring our concerns, our cares, our heartaches before you. In fact, if you look at the Psalms, Lord, almost 40% of the Psalms represent lament because there are just some awful things that happen in this world. We confess to you right now even, Lord, that something is broken in our society, that young men are being raised with violent tendencies. And Lord, this obviously has spilled over to the lives of young people and families. We pray on their behalf, Lord. We ask, God, that you come around those families and that you just wrap your arms around them, that they sense your presence, know your comfort and your care. We believe that you are a just God. We know, Lord, that perpetrators will stand before you as judge. We believe that the loss of innocence, Lord, that you have in your master plan a way to extend mercy to the one who has been offended. And for ourselves, Lord, as we look at shootings like this and these kind of crimes, we, we certainly feel fear for our own lives. Just this morning, I was reading Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God. In my complaint, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Lord, we can dread. We can be fearful. David goes on to say, hide me from the secret plot of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers. You are our righteous protector, our refuge, Lord. We entrust ourselves to you. We know, Lord, that you are fully capable for every single thing that comes our way in this world and on into eternity. We come before you this morning. We just ask, Lord, that you will help us to set aside the things that are heavy on our heart and our mind to hear your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn our Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're continuing in this series, The Making of a Leader. Now, do I have any teachers or former teachers in the room? Go ahead and raise your hand if you, you okay, good, 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 good. Question, question of you teachers, if a student passes a test, even with an A+, has that student mastered the content of the subject? What do you think? All right, I'm a call and response kind of preacher. Say it out loud. I need to hear it. So we have some yes, some no. I'm going to suggest, anecdotally speaking, no, because I passed a lot of tests and I don't remember a lot of things. So what does it take to master a subject? Well, my children's education process, uh, they have an annual challenge in the primary education level. It's called becoming a memory master. And the way that they become a memory master 
is they take an annual test where they have to demonstrate mastery across six domains, Latin, history, math, science, English, geography. Now listen to the nature of this test. They're tested on their memorization skills for an hour and a half. They have to pass the test four times with four different examiners because, you know, a kid can get accustomed to one examiner, so they do it four times. And the first two times they take the test, they can only make one mistake in each of the domains. The second two times they take the test, they have to pass it flawlessly. Isn't it incredible the mind of a child? It's like a little sponge. They just pick up information. They retain information. Now, it's my understanding in science that a kid has 46 chromosomes, 23 from the father, 23 from the mother. All of that memorization comes from the 23 of the mother in my family, okay? They didn't get it from me. Think about mastery in other domains. Think about music. What does it take for a person to master an instrument? I always marvel at Josiah's skills on the acoustic guitar and pretty much any other instrument he chooses to pick up. Uh, a, a person who becomes flawless with their instrument has spent thousands of hours with that instrument. And even the best of the best around the world still must practice every day to maintain the mastery of the instrument. What about your professional career? I've heard it said this way, there are people who have 20 years of experience, and then there are people who repeat the first year 20 times. What's the difference between the two? Mastery. Those who become excellent in their career, they keep learning. They keep seeking to master what they're doing. You know, as I look at the scriptures, I've come to believe that God is in the business of mastery too. When it comes to what he's doing in you, your character, God wants mastery within your character. He doesn't want you to just pass a test one time. No, because that's easy to do. I can study really, really, really hard, and I can pass a test. That's how I got through college. But to master something, well, that requires a whole new level of interaction with the subject matter. So in the story that we're following with David, we're going to see that God actually repeats the same test three times, chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26. The first time he's presented with the test, are you going to love your enemy? He passes with flying colors. But today, there's a different enemy, a different enemy with a different name, and he's going to see, we're going to see if David passes the test this time. So let's pick up the story. We're in chapter 25 and we're looking at the first three verses. So the text says, Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Look at how the Bible is describing this man that David has moved next to. Notice first that we don't begin 
with a name. We're told a description of this man. We're told that he is rich. And then we learn of how many possessions he has. Now, the Hebrew word for rich is the word heavy. We have a similar term in our culture. We talk about a person being loaded. So here you have this guy. He is weighed down with wealth. Now, why do you think the Bible begins with the description? Well, it's trying to tell us that this man's possessions is central to his possessions, his identity. His life is his possessions. And after we learn this about the guy, now we get his name. His name is Nabal. Do you know what Nabal means? It means fool. So basically, anytime one of his workers or anyone else who knows him is calling out to him, they're yelling out, hey, moron. Now, when the Bible describes someone as a fool, it's not suggesting that this person has too few brain cells. There are those of us who are not as gifted in the brain department who are not fools. No, a fool is a person who has a very small heart, who has a mean spirit, who is basically spiritually aloof from God. So if you put all of this together, the description we have of Nabal is this guy is a rich jerk. Matthew Henry called him a muckworm. And the muckworm is about to shear the sheep. Now, sheep shearing time in this culture was a festivity. You know, all of the hard work has been accomplished. It's now time to bring in all of that, those goods that you have been waiting upon. And during this time of festival, the shepherds would pay gratitude tips towards the protectors. There were those who would be out in the fields protecting the shepherds and their flocks because there were bands of raiders who would descend upon these people rapidly. They would take their sheep. They might even rampage across their village. Now, when it comes to a tip, there's no law that says when you go to the restaurant, you must pay your waiter or waitress a tip. But let me just say this, you don't look like a very good person if you're unwilling to do that, right? So David sends a little contingent of men and he asks for a tip. Let's look at verses five through eight. David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Now, if you look at verses 15 and 16, one of Nabal's servants corroborates David's story. David's men, they were like a wall of protection. They took nothing from these shepherds. So let's read Nabal's response to David's kind request. 
verse 9 through 11. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do, know, do not know where? Look at this muckworm. Look at what he's implying. He's saying that David and his men have abandoned their duty. If you look at verse 11, he repeats the first person pronouns, I and my eight times. It's all his stuff. It's all about him. This is his message to David. Why should I share my goods with a bunch of deserters who are led by a no-name lowlife like David? Hmm. Now, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 2 says this, a king's wrath is like the roar of a lion. He who angers him forfeits his life. Now, David is not a king yet, but he certainly has the air of a king, and Nabal has just poked the lion really hard. So we'll see David's response, verses 12 and 13. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up with David. Now, let me ask you, what happened to the magnanimous theologian David of chapter 24? You remember in Engedi? Oh, he's waxing eloquent in theology. He's saying, no one should touch the Lord's anointed, and vengeance is from the Lord. And now the theologian of chapter 24 in chapter 25, he is seeing red, and he's ready to go wipe this guy out. Listen to what this one author says about anger. He says, severe anger is a form of insanity. You are insane whenever you are not in control of your behavior. Therefore, when you are angry and out of control, you are temporarily insane. So right now, David is temporarily insane. Later in this story, he's approached by Nabal's wife, Abigail. And as she approaches David, she finds the man in a state of anger where he's actually muttering to himself. Have you ever been so mad that you're just like under your breath muttering to yourself about how mad you are? Listen to what he's saying to himself as he's approaching Nabal's house. 
Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. Now, the Hebrew, that expression, one male, the Hebrew is a much cruder expression. David is so mad, this is essentially what he says, I'm going to kill anyone who has the ability to stand and pee against the wall. I mean, this guy is fit to be tied right now. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a state like this? I, I know. I know you haven't. I have. I, I remember when I was youth pastor at the church, I was driving, and it wasn't with a bus of teens. It was by myself. I was really late for a breakfast appointment that I had, and I don't necessarily like this about myself, but I hate being late because, in my mind, being late makes you incompetent. I grew up hearing that if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, well, we don't talk about that. So I'm sitting here worried about this person's perception of my competence. I go flying down the road. I'm on a single lane road. I'm breaking all kinds of laws and traffic and all that good stuff right now, going something like 60 miles an hour, just trying to cut down on the time that I'm actually going to be late. Now, I don't know if this has happened to you, but you're flying down one of these single lane roads, and then someone just like cuts out right in front of you. There's no one in front of you. There's no one behind you. Somehow they time it just right to do that right in front of you. You're going 60 miles an hour, and they decide that it's appropriate to go 30. I go temporarily insane. I'm not necessarily yelling at the person, but I'm yelling and I'm hitting the steering wheel, and I am going on like this for about three minutes. Finally, I calm myself down. The two of us, we pull out into a two-lane road. We stop at a red light, and of course, I pull up right next to the person. That's a lady. She rolls down her window, and she is about to give me a piece of her mind. I cut her off before she can say anything, and I say, listen, I know what you're about to say, and you are right. I was being a complete, complete jerk. I shouldn't have been behaving like that. I have no excuse for my actions. I am sorry. And I think she extended me a little grace in that moment because she didn't say anything back. She just went, ah, and then drove off down the road. <laughs> now, like I said, I know you are about to be canonized for sainthood, and you've never experienced something like that before. But I have, and here in this text, David has. Now, what do you think it is that causes us to flare up like this. I want to suggest that there is a common culprit, and I suggest it is your ego. It's your ego. I went off because I didn't want to look incompetent. David went off because Nabal has just run his name through the mud. 
What happens when your ego gets bruised? Well, I've watched really good men, really good women that I know, that I know who they are, that I know what they're like, go in a completely different path when their ego is bruised. Scriptures tell us that we become rash with our words. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one whose rash words are like swords. Have you ever stabbed someone you loved because you lost it? The Bible also says you act foolishly. I'm paraphrasing Proverbs 14, 29 here. If you stay calm, you are wise, but if you have a hot temper, you only show how stupid you are. Friends, pride makes you stupid is a biblical concept. Pride causes the blinders to go up, and what makes sense normally in your moral universe When you lose it, all of that goes out the window. You strap on your sword, and you go off, and you give someone a piece of your mind. Do you see why God needs to aim for mastery within us? I mean, one day, I could be experiencing victory in my Christian walk, and the next, I could be a total loser. I could be one day speaking to my kids with grace and healing, and the next day, I'm pulling out the sword on them. So what does God do? Well, he keeps bringing the same test. Brings it in different forms. Eventually, through repetition, God willing, the lesson sticks. We get better at managing our temper. We learn to let the earth spin a few times before we act. Degree by degree, We are becoming, we are growing to look more like Jesus. Now, let's take a look at Jesus' character. Who did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered? He left the case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Now, it turns out that when you are temporarily insane, you may need to calm down a little bit, and you may need someone's help to help you do that. David needed Abigail. I suggest to you this morning that when you're in a state like this, the worst thing you can do is just keep your own counsel. Stay in your own head. Your own head is like an echo chamber. Your own head tells you that you're absolutely right and you are awesome and everybody else is wrong. So you need an Abigail. You need someone to come alongside and speak biblically to you. Now we learn about Abigail in the first part of the chapter, don't we? She's discerning and she's beautiful. By the way, I don't know if you're asking this question, but how did the muckworm get her? doesn't make any sense to me. Yet here she is, and she's married to the muckworm, and she knows what he's like. So as soon as she hears this story from one of the servants, she goes into action. In verse 18, the text says that she puts together a fine spread of bread, wine, lamb, grain, raisins, and figs. She jumps on a donkey to intercept David. Now, this is not going to be an easy task. Proverbs 18, 19 says this, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Why is that? 
Well, I think Oscar Levent is on to something here. He says, there are two sides to every question, my side and the wrong side. And David, of course, is convinced that he's right. He has every reason to slaughter Nabal and all of his household. So now Abigail has the hard chore, the hard task of helping him to think differently. And this is a great biblical model for how to handle a person in their anger. Let's read what she does. We pick up at verse 23. The text says this. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God." In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So let's really dig in and take a look at how she manages this situation with David. First, notice that she redirects his anger. As she first speaks to him, she says, it's my fault, blame me. Now, is it Abigail's fault? Did she do anything other than be married to the muckworm? Of course not. But it's a, basically what she's saying here is, look, if you're looking for a target for your anger, look to me because your anger is going to affect more people than just Nabal. So she's redirecting his anger. Notice as well that she acknowledges Nabal's character. Now, I wouldn't recommend normally that a spouse do something like this. But here in this text, she's just being honest. If it looks like a duck, acts like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And she's calling a duck a duck. She says this in verse 25, Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Basically, why are you allowing someone that we all know is like this to get under your skin, David? You're 
better than that. But I love what she does next. See, those two things are just really practical pieces of advice when you're dealing with someone in their anger. But if you really want to change someone's mind, well, you have to reach their heart, their convictions. So she provides David three theological reasons why you shouldn't do this. And these theological reasons are always true. No matter who you are, what situation you are dealing with, you can always come back to these truths and remind yourself that I'm not going to take salvation in my own hands. Look at number one. God's bigger purposes for you can't be fulfilled if you take revenge. If you look at verse 28, please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Now here, Abigail is giving David a prophetic vision of the future. He didn't know that God intended to create an enduring legacy and lineage through him. She's basically making the promise that Nathan would give Daniel or David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's almost as if through Abigail, the Lord is saying, look, David, I have great things in store for you. But you can mess those things up if you continue on this path right now. What happens when you get angry? You develop tunnel vision. You look at the person and you see the object of your fury. You forget that God has bigger purposes for your life, bigger plans. Your, your, your ego says, get even right now. But what happens if you pursue that temporary satisfaction? Well, think about it in the context of a marriage. Sometimes in marriage, we get bitter, angry, resentful towards one another. What happens if I give myself fully to those feelings and I say, you know what? That's it, I'm done with this. What are the, the bigger purposes that might be harmed if I head in that direction? Well, maybe it's stability for children. Maybe it's um, economic stability or future connectivity for grandchildren or the opportunity to grow through the struggle. Now, I know that not every marriage is a 50-50 proposition. I know sometimes Abigails are married to Nabels, or vice versa. But in many instances, we head down the road of revenge for temporary satisfaction, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. And because of that, we can't have all of the big things that God intends for us unless we learn to lay down our swords. Let's consider a second principle. God is the avenger of the wicked. Look at verse 29. Abigail says, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, 
The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Now, that reference there, the hollow of a sling, is meant to point back to David's victory over Goliath. David, if God took care of you against the likes of Goliath, don't you think he can take care of you against the likes of Nabal? Come on. Who do you think is better at defending your reputation, you or God? Who do you think? We know that. But it's almost like sometimes in our life we develop a moral amnesia. We forget that God is better at defending our reputation, so we pursue defending our reputation. But let me just tell you this, you're never going to outperform God in those matters. No, if you take it in your own hands and try to work salvation in your own hands, more often than not, you mess up God's process for doing what only he can do. Let's look at one more principle. Verse 31. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation. Now I see this third principle. While there is always forgiveness, some actions have long-term consequences. When I was living in West Virginia in my college years, I remember reading a newspaper clipping of an altercation that happened between two groups of men. There were two gentlemen, they're walking down the road, the main street of Huntington, West Virginia, and then there was a, a truck full of hillbillies driving down the road. And one of the guys walking on the street decides that he's going to yell a profanity at the truck full of hillbillies. Bad idea. The truck pulls over right next to the guys. The guy who yells the profanity, he just up and runs away. The other guy is standing there and he's like, hey, look, y'all, I don't want any problems with anyone here. Well, one of the guys, his ego is bruised. He decides he's going to get out of the truck and take care of business. He walks up to that other guy. He punches him in the face. The guy falls to the ground, hits his head on the concrete, and dies on the spot. Let me ask you, is there forgiveness in Jesus Christ for the man who punched the other guy? Of course. God's grace, the blood of Jesus, is able to overcome your past no matter what you've done but do you think that that decision has forever changed his life? Of course. There's forgiveness, but there's also consequences. She uses the term blood guilt here. David, if you do this, it will forever be a spot on your record. Everyone will remember your actions here. You won't be the king that you could be and should be. Well, after she explains these things to David, it's like the scales fall off of his eyes. In verses 32 and 34, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. 
Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working out salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who is restrained from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. So he leaves matters in God's hands. As the story wraps up, I encourage you to go read the rest of this yourself this morning or this afternoon. We'll see that a couple of things happen. First, God takes Nabal's life. Remember, he's better at defending your reputation than you are. And then secondly, David gets a wife out of this. And she turns out to be a Proverbs 31 wife, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. He marries Abigail. But I want us to see something as we're concluding this. There's a theological point that's greater than even some of the application we've discussed this morning. You see, this story is bigger than dealing with your temper, and it's bigger than how do you manage an angry person. There's a theological point that I hope we all see from the text this morning, and it is this, that Abigail represents God's preventative providence. What is preventative providence? Well, it means that sometimes God rescues you from your own stupidity, your own rash behavior, your own ego-driven madness. It turns out that what's true of David is true of us as well. We are far more prone to sin than we wish to admit. It's so true of us. So what do we need if if this is true of who we are? Well, we need God's preventative providence. And we need the gospel to take root in our life, not just when we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, but all throughout our lives. You see, the gospel is a message for your entire Christian journey. It's not just about getting saved, even though it is about getting saved. It's much more than that. For salvation to work, we need the gospel to be working in our lives from start to finish. We need the gospel at the beginning. The gospel tells me that I'm a sinner, that Jesus Christ came and he laid down his life on the cross. He shed his precious blood so that I might enter back in right relationship with God. And when I appropriate the gospel to my life by faith, I get God's free gift of salvation. I need the gospel in the middle. God continues to work out salvation in my life through a process called sanctification, and it's in this process that he is making me look more and more like Jesus. I need the gospel at the end. That's what we call glorification. One day, you will be made perfect. You will become perfect the masterpiece that God always intended you to become. The Apostle John said it like this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Listen, right now in this whole process of salvation, we're in the middle. We're in the middle. And in the middle, you're going to experience character tests. Why? Because you haven't gained mastery. 
and God intends to make you into a masterpiece. So for this to happen, I need God. I need his preventative providence in my life. And sometimes the people that God uses are Abigail's, other faithful believers who will speak biblically to me. But know this, you can rest assured that he's going to start the process if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, and he's going to complete the process, even if he has to bring you along kicking and screaming. He'll do it. Philippians 1.6, let this word from the Scriptures sink in your hearts. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for the story of David. Lord, I love to see that even some of the most faithful heroes in the scriptures were men and women just like us. In the same processes that you're working out in our lives, you worked out in their lives. And you tell us in your word that you will bring that process to completion. Thank you, Lord, for your preventative providence. What sorts of foolish things would I do without it, Lord? Well, I'm sure all kinds. And I thank you for the, the perfect image of what we could be and should be, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make us more like him today, even today. In your name we pray, amen.